I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I feel like this podcast has been very, like, spiritually focused recently, so this one's definitely going to break it up. (laughs) I'm really excited to bring you today's discussion with James Connolly. It was one of my favorite kinds of conversations because it was super taboo and will likely make a bunch of people uncomfortable, and that's fine. I'm cool with it because that's me, and that's what this podcast is all about and always has been about. Um, Yeah, you know, it's funny in talking to James, I was really reminded of how much I love approaching the world with a critical lens. Um, And it took me a really long time to understand (laughs) that I was doing that. Um, It took a long time for me to like have words and context for what I was feeling and thinking. And, you know, I've told this story so many times on the podcast around the circumstances, um, the circumstances around how I found out my dad was gay. And, um, it was definitely a little bit dramatic the way that I found out, but it really set me up at a young age to approach the world with some degree of skepticism and look a lot more critically at words and labels and boxes. Um, because, you know, here was my dad who, as far as I was concerned, was like the coolest, most loving, kind, funny person on the planet. But now there was this word, gay, that as far as the culture was concerned, meant bad and evil. And so everything became false to me, really. Um, And I I only now, in looking back, realize how unsettling that must have been, because I do think as humans, we have a natural capacity to want to, like, understand things by defining them and understand things by giving them a structure and um, see people through the lens of words and identity Uh, but I wasn't really, I felt like I didn't have the tools to do that. I felt like all I could really do, even though it was unintentional and sort of subconscious was approach things with a critical lens, approach things always with a question. Um, and it wasn't until I got to college that I learned about the term social constructionism. And basically, I think I've probably talked about this before, but it's worth mentioning again. Um, basically A social construction is a concept or a term or an idea that is constructed through a culture, through a society, on behalf of many different people along a period of time that basically uses joint assumptions about the world to come up with this idea or come up with this conclusion, come up with this label or this box. 
And so the word gay is a really good example of that. Gay as identity, um, or even homosexual for that matter. This is a, a new term, um, as was heterosexuality, right? We, we come up with these words that define something, but what they define is something that we've constructed, right? Because the world exists without language and the world exists within many different languages and within many different words. There's so many different ways to see things. Um, and oftentimes we don't realize this, right? And there's a beautiful um, piece of Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer, which is a book that we read in our book club and also a book that probably now like eight people have recommended uh, guests on the podcast when I ask them what book they would like to recommend to the audience. Um, but she talks about native languages and how in what the Western world, we see things as nouns, we see things as things, right? It is a river. But in a lot of native languages, it's actually a verb. It's like the river is rivering. And um, it is like the thing that is lapping against the shore and um, shining its light, you know, as a reflection from the sun. Um, it's much more active. So and, and how does that language and how does that terminology then define how we interact right, with a tree versus a thing that grows leaves, right? If it was more alive, if our language was more um, complex and comprehensive, like maybe we would actually exist in the world and treat the world and each other in different ways. Anyway, I digress. My point is, though, that the word gay or homosexual and the identity that we've applied to it is a construction, which doesn't mean that that having an identity as gay or having an identity as bisexual or homosexual or non-monogamous or anything that we want to say, black, white, um, French, it doesn't matter. All of those things can be real on some level, but I feel like simultaneously we need to always understand that the definition of that word, the space that that identity takes up is something that we've created, either on our own or through these, you know, very complex interactions throughout history, um, alongside other people who exist in the same culture. So one great example that I like to use, and that was like totally eye opening to me when I went to college was learning about how, for example, you can't say accurately that Oscar Wilde was gay, or that Oscar Wilde was a homosexual, because that terminology simply didn't exist then. It's the same thing if we try to project our, and this is um, super relevant as it relates to James and my conversation, because we often tend to not only not understand that our words and our terminology and our way of moving through the world is constructed, but then we take that construction, which is based on very specific, um, you know, localized socioeconomic, uh, sociological, psychological circumstances, and we um, export it to other countries with totally different sets of values and circumstances and socio socioeconomic conditions. Um, and this can be super dangerous because if we look at other cultures as far as sexuality is concerned, you know, there's different cultures that engage in all sorts of what, from our perspective, look like homosexual behavior or look like people who are homosexuals, but in their culture, that's not how they define it, right? So there are some cultures where like, let's say you take two men having sex, only the man who's being penetrated as is seen as quote unquote gay in their culture, although still it's a different word. Um, but the person who is penetrating the guy, um, the man is not considered gay. So 
it's really inaccurate to take these constructs um, and assume that they're uh, can be applied in all contexts. And for a lot of people, this is incredibly unnerving, I think, um, and makes them feel as if the ground is shifting beneath them at all times. And that makes them feel uncomfortable. And perhaps it was just because of the way that I was raised and the way that I, you know, really unintentionally was forced to look at the world. I'm actually much more comforted by that instability. I'm always, you know, if something feels this is the way something is, that makes me a little freaked out. I don't, <laughs> fundamentalism um, doesn't make sense to me. And it's impossible for me to see the world through exclusively my own lens, because I'm aware of the fact that there are other cultures, you know, and why I think this is so meaningful and so cool is because it gives us an opportunity to really look inward and figure out who we are aside from these socially constructed identities that we're told we have to subscribe to, even if that identity is like an unconventional or um, a minority identity, it is still a construction. And it becomes even more difficult when we try to like fight for rights on behalf of an identity group, right? Because like, how do you fight for the rights of women without identifying with other vagina holding humans that like we're all women? Or how do we fight for gay rights without creating an identity and a lifestyle and a life choice? Um, that all sounded like gay is a choice, but like, <laughs> you know, um, having sex with men or having sex with women as a woman or a man with a man is one thing, but creating a life around it, right? That's where the construction comes. Um, what does that mean to you? The fact that you have sex with men, it could mean on the one hand, you live a totally unconventional life. You like hang out with a bunch of other gay people. You live in unconventional family structures, or it can mean that for you, gay is simply just the sexual act and that you would like very much to marry your partner and live a pretty traditional, like nuclear fam family life. There's so much room within a word to act and to define oneself as. Anyway, these types of ideas have been pretty much like the overarching umbrella construct of my life, structure of my life. I'm constantly looking to unpack things. And I think along with the sort of like skepticism and, and um, discernment with which I approach words and identities um, of all kinds, it, it also involves my desire to figure out where those things came from, right? Because if something was constructed, it was constructed from somewhere. Um, this whole course that I took in college was called The Invention of Homosexuality. Um, and actually in our class, I think we read a book called The Invention of Heterosexuality. It was all about where these terms got created. And when we, it's, I think it's important to understand where things came from, um, which isn't to say that that means we uh, shouldn't choose them, right? Just because something is constructed doesn't mean it's bad necessarily. I just think it's important as a mature citizen of the world to at least have the understanding of where something came from without blindly accepting shit. And uh, I brought this up in my conversation with James, but really this has you know, I've, I've taken this to uh, pretty intense uh, reaches as far as understanding the history. I One of my favorite things that I ever wrote was a paper about incest in college. Um, and 
It was called The Question of Consent, a reevaluation of the incest prohibition. And of course, a lot of people could look at that and be like, oh my God, you're promoting like incest and abuse, right? Um, and that isn't what I'm doing. I'm just saying like, we can both understand how something is good and bad while simultaneously understanding where those concepts of good and bad came from. Um, and this is really my conversation with James around vegetarianism, but this can be applied in so many different respects for so many things, right? We can look at this as far as religion goes, as far as race goes, as far as sexuality goes. Um, and I think when we understand the history of something, we can make more mature, um, more aligned, more intentional and more responsible decisions in our lives now. And I get that sometimes it can feel overwhelming or like, what can we possibly trust if we can't just like turn on the news or read a book and accept that it's true? Um, and I get that. I, I I do sometimes wish we lived in a world where certain things were a bit more honest and clear, um, but that's, that's not uh, how things are. And hopefully we can find some degree of joy and pleasure in the puzzle itself and not get lost in the puzzle, right? Just understand like, okay, these laws around incest were created around these certain things. Some of those make sense now and some of them don't, you know, which doesn't mean let's legalize incest, but maybe it's time to, <laughs> to take a bit more of a nuanced approach, right? Same with vegetarianism. Like it's totally, totally legit for people to be vegetarian as long as they're doing it for reasons that are informed and intentional and right for them and their bodies, not because they read something in a book, not because someone told them it was good for the environment, because they themselves put in the work to decide who the fuck they are and who they want to be. So I hope that you can approach this conversation and this entire podcast really with that, <laughs> with that perspective of understanding that everything most everything that we feel is constructed, at least as far as we define it, and that that's not limiting, and that's not frustrating, but that can be incredibly freeing. And we are autonomous humans with agency who get to decide what it means to be a woman. We get to decide why we eat the things we eat. We get to decide what our sexuality is and how we uniquely, specifically want to define that. We don't need to point our fingers at words or identity structures in order to dismiss them and say that they're wrong and we're something different, we can just redefine everything because everything <laughs> is made up. It's all fake, you guys. No, I think things are real. I hate that whole, like, the universe is a simulation or whatever. Um, but having said that, I do think words are simulations. Um, the way we define things and the way we define ourselves is a choice is something we have the power to decide for ourselves. Um, and not only do we have that power to decide how to define things in ourselves, but then um, that also means that we can approach the world in different ways and see the world in different ways and approach people in different ways. Um, and my God, do we need that now? Because I think we've just swallowed so much bullshit and accepted it as truth. And in the process, we have destroyed ourselves and the planet. So I hope you can find some degree of empowerment around this conversation, around these concepts overall. Um, and I want to read a quote by Emile Durkheim, who's basically like the father of sociology. And this is the quote I opened my incest paper with. <laughs> in order to understand a practice or an institution, a judicial or moral rule, it is necessary to trace it as nearly as possible to its origin, 
for between the form it now takes and what it has been, there is a rigorous relationship. A fucking men. Um, before we get into this conversation, I just wanted to briefly mention some things that are happening in the world of the Millennials Guide Patreon. Um, for those who are not familiar or who are not a part of it yet, Patreon is a space where you can support artists and people who do things in the world where money, making money on it is a little bit difficult. So specifically in the creative spaces, um, this is a place where instead of me having sponsors on the podcast, which I genuinely don't ever want to do, I am so done with that world of sponsored marketing crap, um, which isn't to say there aren't companies doing amazing things, but I just really don't want to sponsor the podcast <laughs> because this pod podcast feels so authentic and true and um, just lacking in any degree of inauthenticity. And I don't know how to like say an ad without being at least somewhat inauthentic. So all that to say, um, this is my job, this is my only job. And so the only way that I can make money is through this podcast. And if I don't accept, accept sponsors, the only other way to do that is through donations from you. Um, so this is basically what I do via Patreon. You can go onto Patreon and sign up to donate five, 10 or $25 a month, totally up to you. Um, this money goes to supporting my time, my energy, the travel, the equipment, um, finding the guests, uh, the, the, uh, technology that's needed to record remotely at this point. Um, so that's what that money does. And then in exchange, I, I sort of like to explain that the money that you're donating is not necessarily for the thing, the perks that I offer on Patreon, but really to support the podcast itself. And then the perks that I offer are just bonus. Um, bonus little sprinkles on top of that. Uh, but the bonus sprinkles are pretty fucking nice. So uh, some of the things that I offer on Patreon are uh, patron-only playlists. I actually just released three playlists that I created a year ago. So I think after I have them out for a year, I'll release them to the public. Um, but there are about four or five that are private. I just came out with a new one called Clean, Clean Yo Damn House, um, which I put together while I was cleaning my house. Um, and there are other ones on there as well. One of my favorites called Sex Cult. You know, just have to listen to it to understand what it's about. Um, we have So we have playlists. We have a book club. We are just about to finish our March book club. We are reading Existential Kink um, about quarterly or a bit more, probably five or so times a year. Uh, it's been quarterly so far, but I like doing it. So <laughs> I'll probably have more book clubs. Um, but about quarterly, we choose a book from a selection of books um, that have that have been recommended by former podcast guests. So as you know, if you listen to the podcast, I always ask everyone if you could recommend one book, what would it be? And then we vote on um, one of those books within a certain theme. So this month we're reading Existential Kink, as I mentioned, which is a book that Lenore Black recommended. I am loving it. So many people um, in our community are loving it, and I can't wait to discuss it with everyone live via Zoom. I'm going to be doing two Zoom calls for this one, uh, recording both of them and posting them for people who can't make it live. Uh, and the next one will likely be in May or June. So if you would like to participate in upcoming book clubs, Patreon is the place to do that. We also have a Discord server, which is really amazing. I used to have WhatsApp groups, um, and I just decided it was better to put everyone gather everyone together in one space. Um, uh, basically, the number one goal for me with Patreon is, yes, to make some money so that I can sustain my life, but really to bring you all together. Um, I created this podcast from a place of deep loneliness and deep confusion and deep isolation. And 
I knew that I wanted to create a space where people going through difficult periods of time in their life, transitions where they were really walking away from so many of their friends and family, that they had a place to find those new people, those people that actually aligned with who they were and the kinds of lives that they wanted to live. Um, so that's really my overarching focus. And so when I was creating these WhatsApp groups of like 20 to 30 people, I was getting a lot of feedback about how people wanted to communicate with each other, people in the other groups. So there was a certain degree of intimacy that was created in those WhatsApp groups, which was amazing. Um, but I, I feel that in the different channels I've created on the Discord server, we're able to cultivate that level of intimacy and vulnerability as well. Um, so Discord, you download it. It's like a program. Um, it was originally invented for gamers. Um, but a lot of other types of people have taken it over and it's basically like a big community message board kind of. Um, and within the message board, there's all these different categories. So we've created one for food, psychology, um, meetups, travel recommendations. Um, what else is in there? Oh, sex and relationships. All sorts of different topics. So you can connect with people over generative agriculture. Um, you can connect with people who have, you know, similar interests to you. That was another request I was getting in the WhatsApp groups. Like, can we just create one for music? And can we just create one for, um, you know, regenerative agriculture? And that felt like far too many WhatsApp groups. So now everything is in one place in Discord. Um, and when you sign up at the Renegade level, which is $10 a month or up on Patreon, you get automatic access. You're just uh, added um, automatically to the Discord server. So that's really cool. Um, I also just announced two patron-led workshops. So this is another amazing Patreon thing that I'm stoked about. Um, I decided that it would be cool to engage people in the community to teach things and to workshop things with all of us. Um, and so instead of you just hearing from me all the time, we have all these people in the community who are um, skilled in all sorts of different areas. And so why not set up a space in order to sh share knowledge amongst us all um, and really learn from each other and also give people an opportunity to like, you know, if you're learning some sort of skill and you're just kind of getting good at it, you can use the um, Patreon community as a way to really like workshop your presentation or workshop whatever it is you're working on. So it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, we're not like necessarily hearing from experts, just humans like you and me who are passionate about something and good at something. So I just announced one, um, which is going to be taught by Eli Harrigan on breathwork. And then Ian Wood is teaching one about how to become a more confident creator. Those are happening on April 11th and April 18th. The breathwork workshop is not going to be recorded due to to maintain the privacy um, and intimacy of the group. So definitely something you have to make live. Both of those are also available to patrons at the $10 level and up. We have I also post all of the previous workshops. So um, Isabel, who's a patron of the podcast, taught one on foraging, and I hope she will teach us more um, moving forward about preserving and tinctures and all sorts of amazing things. Um, I also taught one, uh, Astrology 101 workshop. That one's actually available for patrons at all levels, but the rest of them are just the renegade level and up. Um, I have stickers that I mail out, t-shirts. Let's see, I'm going to consult my list because I always forget. Oh, there's a community contact list. Um, so in case the Discord server... And actually, the contact list is available to all levels as well. So if you don't want to participate in the Discord server, but you want to see like who's near you and what their interests are, there's a, a contact list. Um, and I'm also going to be starting to post video recordings of my podcasts on Patreon. Uh, I'm starting to use a new recording software that allows me to record video. So that will be posted on 
um, on Patreon. And I feel like maybe that's it. There are also shirts if you're if you're super wealthy and <laughs> donate 25 bucks a month or more to the podcast, I will send you a free podcast shirt. Um, which actually brings me to a question. I'd love to hear all of your feedback about this. I made shirts uh, for the podcast when I first launched it, but I never sold them. I only offered them as perks and I sort of just started handing them out for free. And I just figured it was too premature. I was too, it was too premature of a project to, uh, to actually have a successful situation as far as selling merch goes. Um, but if you feel like you would want to buy, and if you're not part of the Patreon and you'd like to buy a shirt or a sticker, um, I have one with the podcast logo and then another one uh, uh, that says fix yourself to fix the world with another beautiful illustration. So anyway, I'm just cu curious to hear what you guys think. Should I sell merch? Should I not sell merch? Let me know in an email or a DM on Instagram at Anya.Cots. Um, okay, I'm going to shut up now. Uh, Patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is the way to get to all of what I was just talking about as far as Patreon is concerned. If you have any questions or comments, um, feel free to let me know. And of course, you can also sign up for Patreon just because you want to participate in one of the workshops and then leave a month later. I will not judge you. <laughs> if you want to be a part of a community long term, amazing, amazing, amazing. We'd love to have you. I promise it is worth your while. There is so much juicy stuff happening in this community. Um, but if you just want to sign up because you want to participate in one book club or because you want to participate in one of the workshops I mentioned, um, that's totally cool too. I know money is tight. Just you guys listening, sharing episodes with your friends, posting on social media, all of those things are so so valuable and so amazing to me. So thank you. Um, I'm going to play you into today's episode with a song called Healing by Sampa the Great. Um, I've listened to this song so many times and I only, when I decided I was going to play it on the podcast, looked up the lyrics, which are really interesting and just about how the only person we can heal is ourselves. And even if we beg other people to fix us and give us the answers, um, it'll never work. And that kind of knowledge and wisdom has to come internally, which I think really ties into this whole idea of the social construction of our identities. And it's really up to us to decide who we are and the world we want to live in. I think we have a lot more power and agency than we realize. Um, I think we have the ability to create new worlds within the world that we were handed. So enjoy the song. I love you all. And uh, enjoy this conversation with James, and I will catch you all on the other end.
kudoh sampah Okay, I'm not used to this program. <laughs> there was a countdown and I started talking. Um, okay, so what I was saying, I'm here with James Connolly and I'm um, very excited to chat with him today. He approached me about having a conversation, um, getting into the weeds around vegetarianism, at least as it exists in our culture today. And I'm very interested in this topic and very interested in exploring the historical roots of everything and sort of seeing it in its in a sort of soci sociology based way. Um, so yeah, thanks. Thanks James for coming on the show and for suggesting we have this very taboo conversation. <laughs> yeah, I do <laughs> um, think it's very taboo. Yeah, um, I love it. I'm, I don't know if you know this, but I've mentioned it on the podcast before when I was in college, uh, in my junior senior year of college, maybe I wrote a paper. I went to a very like earthy, crunchy granola college, um, and so we wrote a lot of papers, and I had to write this, like, 25-page paper about a topic loosely related to whatever the course was about. So I took a course right. about the um, the social construction of, like, family life, of the nuclear family, um, and I chose to write a research paper about the incest taboo and breaking down the history and going back in time. So I'm all about, like, picking the most taboo thing that no one wants to talk about <laughs> and, and having a conversation. So you're in good company is, is what yeah. I'm trying to say. Um, so why don't you, I would love to hear, I don't really know much about you. I know you've produced um, and are producing several films that I love and am in support of. Uh, and uh, But other than that, I don't know much about you. So I'm sort of curious to hear, like who you are and why these types of topics are of interest to you and, and what made you want to start researching them? Yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, I would say that uh, I think I thought that this would be a great conversation because I think in, in many ways the way that you and I think align. Um, mm -hmm. I study subjects that nobody else wants to talk about. Um, and I follow a lot of, uh, you know, pull at a lot of strings that I think people would probably want uh, to be buried, um, contemporary and, and past. Mm -hmm. um, I started producing documentaries um, probably about five or six years ago, um, primarily because uh, what I found was I'd, I had run a nonprofit clip for close to a decade that was teaching nutrition education in inner city schools. Um, and I saw coming out of, you know, we, most of our volunteers were nutrition and dietetic students. And I was noticing this real paradigm shift um, uh, in terms of food that was moving towards the idea of like heirloom and studying where our food cultures mm -hmm. came from, uh, but then really jumping past a lot of different topics and moving strictly to vegetarianism uh, and plant-based eating. Uh, there were a lot of schools operating in inner city school uh, in inner city parts of the schools that were essentially forcing or moving the kids towards plant based eating um, and that was a lot of nutritional dogma that was coming out of um, you know uh, the past fifty years of uh, the u s 
uh, Department of Agriculture's dietary guidelines telling us we had to move away from eating meat. And, you know, I kept on raising my hand and saying, wait a second, this is processed food. Like, why are we not talking about sugar? Why are we not talking about all of these different things? And it became a real social justice issue for me. Um, and we had worked with, like, Michelle Obama. We had worked with a number of different organizations that are, are now still actually moving towards plant-based diets. Is, um, and what I saw happening more often than not was when you take away uh, meat from the plate, what, what is it going to be filled with? It's not going to be filled with fresh fruits and vegetables. It's going to be filled... Uh, with just more hyper-palatable, ultra-processed foods. So I started getting into documentaries because I wanted to have like a, more of a top-line discussion of what it means to be an American. Uh, <laughs> you know, Because what I found was this sort of like build yourself up by your bootstraps culture. Um, when you're fundraising and you're spending a lot of time with very wealthy people, they forget about all of the things that gave them a leg up. And I was like, why is it we're not talking about all of these elements of society and culture that essentially ensure that the wealthy stay wealthy and this ladder is not a real ladder in, in any degree. Um, mm -hmm. And so we started to create films centered around that. Um, you know, one of our films is called Transmilitary. We have um, about um, 16,000 troops uh, operating in the U.S. military who identify as transgender or uh, non-binary. Uh, they are still, to this day, cannot uh, operate um, under how they feel, but they defend our society and our culture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we did a film about, um, you know, women who grew up in the 1950s who got really heavily involved in the National Organization for Women uh, and started a vegetarian restaurant. Um, they wanted to operate in Connecticut. It was, uh, the film was called Blood Root. Uh, and it talks about like the long-term effects of being revolutionary, which is really hard on the body and the mind and the soul. And these mm -hmm. two women found each other and fell in love with each other, eschewed modern society, uh, and started a vegetarian restaurant where they were going to feed and nourish people. Um, yeah, I mean, so, the, so that's some of our films. Um, we, we tend to want to talk about uh, subjects that, um, that most people don't necessarily want to talk about, and we want to build bridges. I mean, I think if you talk about the U.S. military and you talk about social justice, uh, you have to understand that we are one of the only modern uh, you know, militaries that don't allow transgender people to serve. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's just a ridiculous enterprise. Um, yeah. You know. How, so do you have some ideas around, if you don't mind talking about it, sort of like your history and growing up and why you feel like your mind <laughs> was created <laughs> in the way that it was, like mind to sort of question things? <laughs> uh, I was going to uh, yeah. start this podcast very specifically with like, I, I'm going, if we go into this whole sort of history of what we have decided we were going to speak about today, yeah. um, I was like, it, it would be hard for most people to follow because I'm going to be jumping along different timelines and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You have to do this for like whatever, however long we're going to do this. I have yeah. to live in this mind <laughs> all the time. Um, yeah. And that, I think that's a really difficult situation to kind of get your mind wrapped around. I, uh, I studied to be an artist. Uh, I worked in butcher shops my whole life. Um, mm -hmm. I studied under master butchers. I went to culinary school. Um, I spend a lot of time by myself as an artist, and audiobooks saved my life. 
uh, I would just listen to things and you know one subject would lead on to the next subject would lead on to the next subject and so I think if you look at the history of compulsory education uh, it's the it's it's the way that I think people who really study the way that humans want to learn um, mm -hmm. we should all be a little bit more like librarians teachers should be like librarians mm -hmm. it's you guide the student to the subject that they might be looking for you don't tell them what to think Right. Um, and that's what I did for close to a decade as an artist. And so I emerged as this weird amorphous entity. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, that is sort of why I was grateful to go to the school that I went to. We didn't have tests or anything like that. And they were mm -hmm. just like, okay, you have your classes and then you have to go and write something. And it, it yeah, okay. It, you know, it has to do loosely with what we're talking about, but really it's, it's for you. And, um, I felt like I was a dumb person before I went to college because I didn't mm. understand how to like learn in a traditional way. Like I was horrible at tests, like stress. I was just like, no. Um, so yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I completely agree. So, I mean, that's interesting. So you worked in a butcher shop. So I'm assuming that that experience also informed some of these interests as far as like sustainable food and meat specifically? Um, you know, I, I, you would think that it would. I think the only thing that it really did was I didn't have a disgust of breaking down animals. Mm. Um, you know, our, our divorce from how our food is made nowadays um, wasn't something that I could obfuscate because I'd walk into that butcher shop every day and we'd break down right. animals um, quartered or halved. Uh, into all of its component parts. And we were an old school butcher shop, Irish, you know, we'd sell tripe, um, cow stomach, we'd sell, you know, any number of different things. So you just couldn't, you, what I found with a lot of nutrition and dietetic students was that if they handled meat, they handled it as if it was, a, you know, had atomic radiation. They would grab yeah. it with like two fingers and were deathly afraid of food. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I think that that, you know, when we, talk about the, the topic that we're talking about, I think a lot of that has to do with a, a real disconnect from where our food is coming from. Uh, and mm -hmm. so you can, per, you know, perceive it as, as something that doesn't have properties uh, that were once living. Right. So let's talk, because I know there's a lot to say about it, um, about vegetarianism. And I, I would love before <sighs> we sort of dive into the history of all of that, if you could define what you mean by vegetarian within this context, right? Because as we were talking about before we recorded, like there's versions of vegetarianism with varying histories, I imagine, at, in different places of the world. So when we sort of talk about, you know, vegetarian in this context, what is it that you sort of see this encompassing? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, uh... I think if you if you follow me on social media, you get a, a, a distinct impression that I am anti-vegan or vegetarian. Mm -hmm. um, I um, it, and it's only really from one specific topic, which is this sort of morality tale that comes along with it. Um, I, I find uh, the history of vegetarian peoples through through throughout um, the Western world and, and and the Eastern world. I think what you'll find is. You'll find people like Pythagoras. Uh, you'll find um, heroes of mine, like Benjamin Lay, who was a um, uh, he was a Quaker preacher, um, who would do these incredible. He would he would shame all of these Quakers who were heavily involved in slavery. He has this one story where he goes up and he um, fills his Bible with um, 
pig's blood uh, that he puts into a, a bladder and he carves out the inside of the Bible and he stands up there and he slices a knife through the Bible, uh, essentially shaming all of these people about the blood uh, that's involved in the U.S. slave trade. And he walked away from all of it. He wanted nothing to do with any of it. Um, and he, um, he just lived off in a cave for the rest of his life. He didn't want to participate at all with any of the mechanisms that were involved in slavery. He's one of my heroes. Um, when I talk about vegetarianism, uh, specifically what I end up talking about is this um, very 19th century movement that was born out of uh, the industrial movement that started moving people to cities. And when people who were heavily involved in agriculture uh, started to move away from that and started living in cities, uh, you found this sort of open uh, world where now you could have these people who are fundamentally divorced from where their food was coming from, uh, you could create an entire paradigm around that. Mm. Um, and I thought I would start out with a story, if you want. Um, yeah. it's, it's a really interesting story. I think any, if anybody has uh, gone through high school uh, science class, biology classes and stuff like that, uh, I think you'll find the parallels uh, kind of really interesting. Um, so there, there was a play and then there was a film uh, called Inherit the Wind. I don't know if you're mm. familiar with it. Mm -mm. Uh, it's, it's involved, it's revolves around, um, uh, the 1925 Scope, Scopes Monkey Trial. Um, and so it was in, it was the, uh, the state of Tennessee versus, um, this, uh, biology teachers, uh, who was teaching Darwinian evolution in schools. Uh, and it was actually at the time was illegal, uh, to teach Darwinian evolution. Uh, and so he did it. It became a big trial. You had two of the world's, uh, the U.S.'s most prominent um, preachers, uh, lawyers and preachers, come and they argue this case. Yeah. And it's a really interesting story because you hear about this story only as the triumph of science over all of these like dark age mythologies, right? Right. right, um, right. You know, the Christian church is on trial. They heavily believe in uh, creationism or... Uh, or some progenitor of creationism. Um, mm. And it's a, it, it's a great play to watch because you're going to find yourself on the side of like science and science right. is triumphant and all of this other stuff. Right. So, um, so I started doing some research on the actual trial itself and it goes into this whole thing where it says um, uh, the textbook that was used was a biology textbook and it's a, it's a very generic biology textbook. Like, here are amphibians, and this is what geology is, and uh, <laughs> any number of different things that like, we all like, went through. And then right. it gets to this one section where it talks about the biology of human beings. And it goes into this story. And the story is about the Calicuck family, right? Um, and it's talking about this uh, Civil War soldier uh, who went down south, and he had sex with this feeble-minded woman. Uh, and then he came back, and he, uh, jo he joined the landed gentry of society, and then he got married into a proper family, a blue-blooded family. And so it followed the, these timelines that went down, and it shows the genealogical history of his, you know, preferable DNA, uh, mm -hmm. having to be mixed with this other person who is feeble-minded. 
and mm. the cost to the state, uh, the number of people who are in prison, the alcoholism. So you see this sort of race degeneracy that's happening on the one side, and then you see this other side of the family, um, which some people have speculated he was one of the early Roosevelt's. Uh, and mm. so you see this blue-blooded presidential society that's sort of like based on that. Uh, mm. And it's based on this Mendelian genetics. Uh, Gregory Mendel was this uh, really obscure scientist. He was, um, I don't know if you remember the whole pea plant thing that we all had to do. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> eye color, all of these different things. Right. Um, yeah. His research had been dead for a very long time. It was resurrected by the eugenics movement because they were very specifically into this idea of race degeneracy. Mm -hmm. um, and so anthropology at the time was centered around that. Um, yeah. Madison Grant, who was uh, one of the founders of the American Zoological Society, um, he was a big proponent of race degeneracy. He wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race, uh, which was called Hitler's Bible. Mm -hmm. um, and so when the Catholic Church was going against the Scopes monkey trial, what they were saying was, no, like, all right, regardless of what you think evolution is, what we're talking about is social Darwinism. And social Darwinism is centered around this idea of like, you know, if we allow these, these feeble-minded people, these black people, these Native Americans to breed, they're going to breed to profusion. And what's going to happen is we're going to have a race of people that are all degenerates. Mm. And so Madison Grant comes, you know, he's, he's the one who comes out and says, you know, if the blood of a white person mixes with 1% of the blood of a Jew, he is a Jew. You know, mm -hmm. he is the one who is centering all of this stuff about the, the demise of the white race centered around eugenics. Mm -hmm. So I started getting really into this stuff, and I was like, well, where is this all coming from? Um, and it's, um, a lot of it is centered around this 19th century movement that was based on uh, these... Um, so if you, if you took notions of feeble-mindedness, you would have to go into notions of intelligence. And intelligence was centered around this idea of, like, how do you measure what intelligence was? Mm -hmm. um, prior to the IQ tests that we have nowadays, um, you know, which try as much as they, they tr you know, say they, they are doing to measure the actual intellect, everything in the 19th century centered around intelligence centered around studies of that were centered around character. So, right. what, so what is intelligence uh, but your ability to be melded into society, to be mm, you know, right. progenitive of the right stock and all this other stuff? Right. Um, I was gonna, also going to ask like, how much yep. of it has to ha had to do with just even class, right? Like how are we categorizing things based on that with it seems like sort of arbitrary as to like what intelligence is like i don't know uh family standing and um yes. you know yeah virtue to society all of that stuff yes everything is centered yeah. around that it's about control of the masses um yeah. and what you start to see is you start to see religions that are born in the 19th century centered around these idea of character um and degeneracy of character um, and that is homosexuality or, um, you know, uh, notions of purity, uh, always notions of purity. Um, they are weirdly obsessed with masturbation. They're weirdly yeah. obsessed with uh, anything to do with, um, uh, you know, uh, so, so diet at the time became this thing that was centered around this 
um, could you create more purity and more character uh, around diet? Um, and so in the same way that Jewish blood was considered polluting, meat was also considered polluting to the body. Um, and so you had this real vegetarian movement start to come out of that. Uh, Sylvester Graham was, was one of the first. Um, he comes about, he, he creates one of the first vegetarian diets. Um, and he starts to sell it around. Um, and you see a lot of these um, different modalities go into phrenology. Um, and so phrenology now is considered kind of a bunk science, right? It's like considered a joke. Um, people yeah. look at these busts and they say, well, you know, and although it, it still exists nowadays. Um, phrenology was um, uh, sort of an outsider. Like Darwin hated it. He thought it was ridiculous. Um, but phrenology textbooks sold three times more than the origin of species um, mm -hmm. in the 19th century. Uh, they had monthly pamphlets that would go, they were 20,000 monthly pamphlets that would go out. Um, and it became the center of the study of character. And that character also became the center, center of these new religions. Um, mm. So Grahamites weren't necessarily sort of religious in aspect. Um, they definitely were weirdly obsessed with masturbation and purity and removal of meat. Uh, weirdly enough, he, um, his health failed incredibly towards the end and he actually went back to eating meat to try to save his life, but it was too late. Um, but Grahamites, um, started off in this kind of weird, like, uh, uh, frame, then were picked up by the elite as a methodology to say, this is the reason why they are elite, um, mm. because they have character and, you know, I think if you look at a lot of the original textbooks, it really goes into um, how close um, African peoples and black people are to their primeval ancestors and the apes. And, you know, a lot of those cartoons and character caricatures kind of came from phrenology. Right. Um, and it, it really wasn't picked up a lot until it hit the United States. And then you start to get these slave owners who are like, of course, right? <laughs> and, and what... So what was the, do you, like, what was the reason that meat was seen in this context? Like, did this have something to do with sexuality or like, was it a moral thing? Where, what was the demonization of meat specifically? Uh, the, so um, when you looked at the diets that they, um, they put out, uh, most of them were like, uh, they were low in salt, um, no flavor, no texture, mm -hmm. no garlic, um, you know, the, the idea was that if you excited the, the taste buds, you would also excite the sexual organs and then, of course, right. um, you know, and you would move on to all of those things. Um, and I think if you look at like the American vegetarian societies, like position yeah. papers, um, in and around World War One, they are very yeah. specific about their intent to diminish the virility of men specifically, uh, so that they would no longer want to commit war. And so right, it has and isn't to do this with like, like, yeah, <laughs> sorry. Uh, isn't this also, I mean, I'm probably jumping ahead, but like, wasn't this the basis of the invention of like cornflakes or something that yeah. there was like bland food that would stop people, stop men from wanting to masturbate? Yeah. We're getting there. We're getting yeah. there. <laughs> okay. okay. I'll shut up. I'll shut so, up. <laughs> no, 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 this is great. So, um, so Grahamites uh, started to create these clinics all over the U.S., um, and there were places where people would go and convalesce. Um, you know, obviously there were a lot of foodborne illnesses and a lot of, you know, germ theory wasn't particularly well known at this time. 
And so people would go to these places to convalesce. Grahamites were primarily promoting vegetarian diet. Uh, so Ellen G. White, who is the founder of Seven Day Adventism, uh, she, I think she was part of a bullying incident when she was younger. She was hit with mm -hmm. a rock. Um, and I think she spent some time in a coma. And when she came out, she started to have these, like, uh, visions. Um, and she had con convalesced at a Graham house. So Graham houses were mm -hmm. a weird admixture of phrenology um, and vegetarianism. And so she's in this, like, you'll actually love this area. It's called the Burndover District in New York. Um, mm -hmm. And it was... Uh, these places where people would kind of go and they would start try to set up these utopian societies outside mm. of New York City. Um, and that's where Mormonism comes from. So John Smith essentially created his tombs in and around this area. Mm. Uh, the Millerites um, were a sect that had predicted the end of the world. I think it was like in 1887. Um, L.N.G. White belonged to them. And then essentially when it didn't happen, they all like disbanded. Uh, right. The Oneida Sex Colony was uh, there, which was um, this free love group um, that essentially fell apart because it was just a bunch of old men who wanted to have sex with the younger women, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, and so it was just like this weird area where people like trying out new religions. Um, Ellen G. White started to have these like real visions of what the future would look like. Um, and so she went across um, and set up in Battle Creek, Michigan. Um, and that's where her church was primarily founded. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a health church. It was always centered around health. Um, it was centered around, um, you know, uh, this idea that the original, um, there's a, a biblical passage that says um, in Genesis that, that, men, uh, that people should eat from the meat of the seed. Uh, mm -hmm. And so she took that as uh, we should be vegetarian. Um, and she spends a lot of time talking about like sex and all this other stuff. So she, she takes on an apprentice at 11 years old, uh, by the name of John Harvey Kellogg. Uh, and he starts to like really get into all of this stuff. Uh, they pay for him to go to medical school. Uh, and he goes to, uh, Connecticut and studies under a guy who is also associated with phrenology and they do hydrotherapy, um, you know, just tubes of water up, up the butt. I always forget what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was probably like the biggest, uh, you know, medical, uh, you know, intrusion, you could say, <laughs> many different ways. Yeah. At the yeah. time, he studies that. He comes back, and he wants to get a real medical degree, so they pay for him to go to New York, and he studies there. Um, the time that he spends there is mainly at these, like, um, medical clinics uh, centered around STDs. Um, and so syphilis and gonorrhea and all of this other stuff. So he's seeing the sort of real long-term damage that a lot of these sexually transmitted diseases uh, mm -hmm. can have on, on mental health. Um, I don't mm. know if you've ever seen x-rays of syphilis, what it does to the mind. Yeah. Um, and so he comes back and he is just fired up for all of this stuff. Um, he marries a woman on his honeymoon. Uh, he writes a whole treatise on... Uh, on never having sex. He claims he's never had sex with his wife in 40 years. Um, although he does get an enema from a young man every single day. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> um, and so he, you know, yeah, and he wants to create a food 
that is so banal that boys would never want to touch themselves uh, right. and girls would never want to, you know, touch themselves as well. And yeah. he's, you know, a, a lot of them are really centered around this idea. They, they, um, they do carbolic acid on, on women's um, clitorises so they can no longer experience pleasure. Um, he invents uh, uh, like a silver thread that goes through the boy's penis. So if they get an erection, um, you know, it, uh, it'll really mm. hurt. Uh, he's part of the reason why non-Jewish men, he is the reason why non-Jewish men in America are circumcised. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all centered around a lot of these practices. Um, and so this weird sort of like um, synergistic idea of vegetarianism and purity uh, essentially like cascades throughout um, a lot of white supremacist uh, movements um, uh, during the 19th century, um, you know, centered around the 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 perfection of the Aryan race and the Caucasian man and all of these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Kellogg gets really heavily involved in the eugenics movement. He's one of the main pioneers of it. Um, he, one of the first conferences talking about like sterilization and, um, you know, forced sterilization of inferior peoples, indigenous peoples and blacks and all of this other stuff. Um, he is the main funder of a lot of that stuff. It actually happens at his place in Battle Creek. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, and that's where you start to see a real cascade of the major proponents of sterilization. Um, and then, you know, like a lot of this stuff becomes uh, ruled by the courts. The Supreme Court rules that you can, you can sterilize people who are feeble-minded uh, to ensure that they cannot um, be like the Calicut family and produce races of degenerate peoples. Um, you know, and then... Um, I mean, we can pause there if you have any questions. I know it throws a lot. At <laughs> I'm, you. I'm totally enthralled. I'm, yeah, no, I'm, I'm in it. You it's should just keep going. It's about okay. to get worse. It's about to get worse. So, uh, so uh, he has three eugenics conferences. Uh, they all center around about 1914, 1917. Um, the you start to get into this idea of. Um, a statewide sanction sterilization of people. And we don't really know the numbers in the states. It's between 30 and 30,000 or upwards of about 30,000 people uh, mm-hmm. who were forcibly sterilized. Um, they invented a technique uh, that would do it. There's one story about the um, a guy who, this is how insane it was at the time. Uh, a, a, a father went away on a business trip uh, and uh, they went, the eugenics sterilization uh, group went to their house, sterilized the wife and the, and the daughter while they were gone. And their reasoning was there would, you shouldn't have two women, two women sitting uh, in alone in a house. It has to be a brothel. And so therefore they should be sterilized. Um, and it really reached a crescendo with uh, a U.S. Um, um, a Supreme Court decision to forcibly sterilize uh, Carrie Buck, um, and so she was institutionalized. She she had a teen pregnancy, um, and they put her into a place where she was going to have the baby. The baby was born. Uh, one of the sterilization doctors did an analysis and decided the baby was feeble-minded. Decided the mother was feeble-minded, and her mother was interned there. And so they created this. Oh, this is three generations of feeble-minded people. 
Uh, Carrie Buck was an all-star student in school. They never even questioned this, the, the school as to whether or not she was feeble-minded or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it became law. Um, you know, you could sterilize people. Um, now, those rules, those laws were put in place um, in Germany as they were trying to figure out what to do with the Jewish question. And so all of those sterilization sterilization laws um, had to have found a precedent um, in international law. And when when the uh, Nazis were looking for that, they came to the States. Um, They also used it for internment camps. I mean, obviously, the internment camps of the... um, the Japanese and the Native Americans and all of that stuff were, were given uh, judicial precedent. Uh, and if you want to see a movie about it, um, uh, it's really fascinating. It's called Conspiracy. It's on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's t- uh, verbatim the actual uh, meeting where all of the Nazis sat down and they go through um, the forced sterilization, the laws, uh, mm-hmm. and it's really entertaining um, no. in, a, in a morbid, totally morbid <laughs> yes, way. Sounds <laughs> <Sorry. great>. yeah. <laughs> um, Like Kenneth Bradnaugh is one of the producers. I think he's the director of the film. Uh, it's yeah. all taken in one clip. So it's actually really, it, it's an amazing, amazing play mm-hmm. um, that's, that's performed. But they start out with sterilization, and then they say, oh, fuck it, we're just going to move to concentration camps. And we're, one generation is too long to have these people around. Um, and so I think when you're looking into a lot of this stuff, um, you start to find these threads that follow along these ideas of race purity. Uh, Hitler was, um, you can find enormous argument as to whether or not Hitler was vegetarian. Uh, we know that Goebbels and his head of propaganda um, said over and over again that he was vegetarian. Uh, it had to do with this idea of polluting the body and polluting the blood mm-hmm. with any dead carcass or any, you know, um, any of the blood of another person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it becomes intrinsic to the notion of purity um, that you start to see in and around these ideas of vegetarianism. Um, and Ellen G. White, her ideas of this stuff um, uh, really start to get out into the rest of the world. Um, Seventh-day Adventism is this sort of weird religion that uh, nobody really pays attention to. Uh, mm-hmm. They have enormous influence. Um, they have enormous influence over U.S. dietary guidelines. They have enormous influence over, um, you know, uh, the the way that we think of what uh, the health halo that's centered around vegetarian foods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think when you're looking at a lot of this stuff, it's really hard to kind of parse through because we say, all right, this is history. So now what do we say? Like, well, how do we say that, how this is played out uh, in the way that we think about things today? Um mm-hmm. I mean, we still have sterilization programs. They're still legal in a lot of states. Uh, there are, um, uh, you know, any number of different things associated with the vegetarian movement um, that have been able to inf- influence the way that we eat. Um, the five of the original nine people on the U.S. dietary guidelines who said that vegan and vegetarian diets were um, were healthy at every stage of life were all fr- Seventh Day Adventists. Uh, they had gone to Loma Linda University and studied there. And it's one of those strange things when you study a lot about uh, food and nutrition is that people have to 
generally have to disclose a conflict of interest. What they don't have to disclose is a re religious ideology, religious. right? Um, and I think that, you know, I think that's one of the things that um, we, we have to start to reconcile ourselves with is as we're moving towards this sort of plant-based movement, uh, this idea of uh, the purity of these impossible foods grown in a lab, um, any number of different things uh, centered around this transition away from meat. Um, you know, I think that the health halo of vegetarianism has started to lose uh, ground because I think a lot of the pushback on that, um, you know, really centered around this idea of like, well, what about sugar? What about processed food? What about 63% mm -hmm. of the American diet is ultra processed foods? Like, mm -hmm. why, are we not, why are we blaming meat for this stuff? Uh, and so the pivot I saw happening in real time was this uh, pivot to say, well, now meat eating is responsible for enormous cli uh, climate change problems, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and the ideology behind that is centered around this, this same, I think, religious fundamentalism. Yeah. So in terms of like now, you know, when we think about who's ben benefiting from and who's making money from uh, the vegetarian movement and its connection, like I'm assuming there are still these links right throughout corporations and, um, you know, the 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 industrial system that is food and like how what how how is it being spun in this you know if it's being based on all this sort of like religious purity morality mm -hmm. um it's clearly being spun in a way that's you know a lot of people i assume who would be listening and who are vegetarians don't have any idea about any of this stuff or, or would would claim like well but that's not why i'm doing it um so i'm sort of you know <laughs> I'm interested in like how the modern day person has consumed this to the extent that it means something to them and feels like it's the right thing to do without necessarily knowing who and what is behind promoting the ideology or the choices in the first place. Uh, yeah, and I think that's where it starts to get a little bit more obscure. Um, yeah. I think when you start to look at, um, you know, the the horrors of the animal uh, industrial agricultural movement, yeah. uh, you know, confined animal feeding operations. I think the thing that galvanizes people around the idea of uh, moving towards a, a plant-based diet is um, um, uh, I think is warranted. I mean, I think it's absolutely horrific what we, have, what yeah. we do to animals in order to feed ourselves. Um, I think a lot of the ideology that's coming out of uh, that that bothers me is this idea of purity. Um, you see these companies that come out that call themselves no evil or cruelty free, right. Um, right. Uh, you know, that are centered around uh, the removal of animal products from uh, low income, uh, you know, um, families in places like India. Um, where the vegetarian movement is is centered around caste, uh, a lot of the people promoting uh, veg vegetarianism in India are part of the Brahmin caste, um, and so the the forced removal of uh, really nutrient dense foods from uh, from the poor and the working class, right. um, I I think is centered around the idea of like um, you know uh, you do not want a strong populace of people. 
you want them to be fat. You want them to be sick. You want them to be unhealthy. Um, and I think if you look at you know, one of the weirdest parts about studying a lot of this stuff is you start to see a lot. Um, Hitler's a very popular character in India. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you ever knew that. Um, he, uh, there are hundreds of thousands of uh, copies of Mein Kampf uh, that are distributed throughout all of India. Um, mainly centered around the Brahmin class um, and uh, the ruling party right now, which is the BJP. Mm -hmm. uh, Nahendra Modi is the prime minister. He is part of that legacy uh, that was Indian fascism, that was Indian Nazism. Mm -hmm. uh, the original progenitors of that uh, were Nazis. Um, and you can definitely see a, an ideology in the removal of meat from from those classes. You do not want a, uh, a healthy working population, um, you know, and I don't know. I mean, I've, I've never been able to parse out that nobody's really clear or distinct about their methodology and thought. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think when we look at the U.S., uh, we're looking at caste as well, always, um, in the way that we think about um, our ruling classes and the and, and the technocrats who are essentially governing, governing through their futuristic uh, techno-utopia that they're building for us, right. uh, you know, which it, I think we should all be worried about because it's all, it's all in closed doors, right? Davos, um, you know, Stanford University, Pat Brown, Impossible Foods, uh, every single one of those guys, um, you know, they're part of the UN right now. They're... You know, they're regaled as uh, saviors of the planet uh, and right. they get virtually no pushback for that. Right. Yeah. Can we unpack that a little bit more? Because I'm not even super familiar. I mean, I'm sort of vaguely familiar with where all these sort of processed lab made meats are coming from. And I mean, obviously, I, I, I guess I also wanted to say, like, you know, uh, part of this is like a perfect storm. Right. There's like the people with the sort of religious beliefs um and you know the spread of those beliefs there's like the corporate interest there's the the way in which we produce meat now it seems to me like these puzzle pieces are linked in a way but also it's just like a collection of of horrors sort of working together in this way that we're not totally conscious of they're communicating with each other and supporting each other in ways that we're unaware of um but like, yeah, so who who and what <laughs> um, are behind Impossible Burger and mm. these lab-based meats, and does that have any correlation to this sort of, like, religious, pure background? Um, you know, I think um, the way that I would want to answer this um, is that um, the, the functional shift towards plant-based foods... Um, is governed by multinational corporations. Um, mm. The ones that I usually push uh, uh, would talk about is General Mills, which is the Seventh Day Adventist, Kellogg. Um, you know, those those guys are all centered around Seventh Day Adventism. Most of the cereals that were produced um, were centered around that. Uh, Nestle, which is a multinational corporation that has been implicated in um, the any number of different major international crimes, um, one being uh, their uh, infant formula scandal in Africa. So they mm. were going into places and giving out free samples to uh, new, new mothers. 
um, and saying that this was this was a cleaner version than breast milk. Um, and so the mother's milk would dry up. They couldn't afford uh, to buy the actual um, formula itself, so they'd water it down. And all of these children were dying from from stunting and from nutritional diseases because the mothers mm -hmm. couldn't feed them anymore. Um, and Unilever, which is one, uh, a British company that was heavily involved in uh, the Belgian Congo, uh, responsible for genocide over there, uh, now one of the biggest uh, multinational co companies in the world. Um, you know, enormous amount of influence, enormous amount of power, um, mm -hmm. and no real pushback. Um, you know, I think the Impossible Foods, uh, Beyond Burger, all of those guys, they're primarily funded by billionaires. Um, yeah. You know, they get enormous cash, cash flow coming at them based on this, like, propensity that they'll be able to, uh, to create something analogous to, to beef um, mm -hmm. or chicken or something like that. Um, but only in texture, not in nutritional profile. Right. Um, everything else is added <laughs> back in, right? So right. it's like it, all they wanted to do, they said, you know, the vegetarian, so Pat Brown said the vegetarian movement has been pushing for people to stop eating meat for 40 years. And they have been enormously successful at doing so. Um, there has been an enormous reduction in red meat consumption. Uh, most of it was replaced by chicken or chicken breast and stuff like that. But they have been, like, able to really vilify meat. Um, but it wasn't enough, and so they decided to create something that was going to have the textural profile, um, you know, just like margarine. I mean, margarine was, you know, trans fats, all of, the, all of those things were considered marvels of the techno age. Uh, it just turns out it clogs your heart and, you know, <laughs> and gives you a stroke, um, you know. Right. So, yeah. I mean, and and going back to where we sort of started this conversation around the sort of scientific worldview, like it also seems like to some extent, you know, it's always been interesting to me that people who decide to be vegetarian often still want to consume products that taste very much like and feel very much like meat. Um, <laughs> and to me, the only valid reason for vegetarianism was like, oh, I'm just like actually grossed out by meat. Like I can't. It's just not appealing to me. It's not necessarily a moral thing or a health thing or an environmental thing. I just don't like it. Yeah. Um, and so I always felt like people that sort of eliminated meat from their diet, but then were, were consuming all of these products, you know, then I feel like we are talking about some sort of morality or a disconnection from the natural cycles of life um, and from the sort of animate nature of the world, it's like, it's so hypo um, hypocritical to me because <laughs> I feel like often the, the reason someone is a vegetarian is because they want to protect the natural world or protect animals. When in fact, I feel like the perspective they're coming from is extremely disconnected in sort of a real spiritual way. Um, and how this scientific worldview is sort of perpetuating that disconnection to some extent the the connection you had in the butcher shop for example mm -hmm. that for other people is you know just totally disgusting and and what is it about like I remember talking to Diana when she came on the podcast about you know our total fear of death you know yeah. <laughs> and um I think science and logic and theory sort of can protect us from life 
and all that it entails. Um, and I just wonder if, if you've sort of thought about that as well, as far as the current trends go of, of people being very sort of afraid of, of meat and death and life and yeah, there's all a, of that. Uh, there's a, um, I don't know, I wouldn't even know, uh, maybe environmental activist, uh, George Monbiot in, mm. in England, who um, uh, created a documentary called The End of Agriculture. And so what he was going to do is he had these vats of, like, biological material uh, that were going to be produced that would essentially end agriculture altogether. Mm. Um, he's blamed, um, and look, I mean, we have terraformed this earth to feed ourselves, yeah. right? We have to eat 365 days a year throughout, uh, yeah. the course of our entire life. Um, I found the weird disconnect, um, that happens with a lot of this is that, um, is the consequence of, um, the modern day slavery associated with, um, the, all of the food that we eat, right? So, Migrant workers, um, mm. you know, the, the level of pesticide exposure that they go through, um, right. the, you know, the, the real sort of like penury and slavery that they'd have to endure in order to pick our, uh, all of our foods. Um, you know, um, there's a great book called Tomatoland, um, uh, Estabrook's book, um, and, a, and a documentary film uh, called Food Chains that really go into um, a lot of the pressures that are put on the migrant community. Um, and mm -hmm. since Trump's war on, on, you know, his attempt to build the wall, well, what does the U.S. agricultural system do, right? Um, well, we have tons of people in prison. We imprison more people than any, any other country in the world. Uh, we're just going to farm out that labor uh, and force those guys to pick our fruits and vegetables. Um, and so this weird idea that we um, can somehow remove ourselves from all of it um, only seems to be a vegetarian or vegan worldview. Um, we are just in the shit in every single way. Um, yeah. And unless we start to create these, like, um, you know, um, remove ourselves from these fantasies, um, we can't really push back against any of it. Um, mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I think that that, um, that's, that that's all I want to, like, I don't want to advocate for people to eat meat if they don't want to. Um, I just think it's just so strange that we just give slavery uh, and sh like sugar production, slavery. It's like the two actually went hand in hand. Um, yeah. It just gets the biggest buy in the world. Coca-Cola, you know, every single one of these companies has made billions. Um, one of the statistics I use um, is the Robert Wood Johnson spends $100 million a year studying childhood obesity, uh, child obesity. Um, the processed food um, marketing uh, spends $100 million by January 4th. It's in the billions that they spend marketing uh, junk to us, uh, to our children, having it associated with like every aspect of our lives that is considered a childhood memory, right? Mm -hmm. You go to the baseball game, Coca-Cola is there. Um, you know, any number of different things is associated with that. Um, they know what they're doing. They know how to hijack uh, our our reasoning, um, right. and they know how to create an emotional experience around a food, even though we know it's killing people. You know, right. and these are the companies that are deciding what we're going to eat. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> Agree. Yeah, I find this issue. There are a couple things in the world that 
that make me extremely infuriated. And I think that what you just mentioned, the, the hijacking of like, you know, I think of a lot of a lot of people who I mean, I know some of them like who are close to me, who young people who are truly, you know, think they're doing the right thing by opting out of meat and by choosing, you know, some sort of fake meat product. And they truly think that that's the best thing that they can be doing for their health and their nutrition and the world. And these, you know, corporations are hijacking that desire to do good. And unfortunately, a lot of people are not you know, practicing discrimination and discernment in figuring out, you know, who's okay, who's promoting this and where's the money and like, what does this contain? And um, is it true that all meat is sort of produced in a way that is detrimental to my health and to the planet? Um, we put so much trust in these systems. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's something I've always been grateful for is that I've always been extremely skeptical about things. <laughs> so like I, I, I mean, at an early age, like being told this is the way it is was like, no, sorry, that's just not how I operate. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm assuming that part of your sort of mission and sharing this information is these documentaries and all of that. Do you feel... Um, does it feel satisfying? Do you feel sometimes like sort of defeatist given the scale of these, this, <laughs> these misinformations? And <laughs> yes, 100%. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 I like the fight. Um, yeah. I, I do, I'm an introvert by nature. So, um, there is an emotional cost to me. Um, you know, I spent a lot of my life, um, you know, just drawing and painting and, and creating art um, to wade into all of this uh, is very difficult for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think um, I think it's worth the fight. Um, you know, uh, in, in so many different ways. Um, but I, I do think we're losing. Um, you know, I, look, I think for our film, um, nobody wanted to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Um, even ranchers were afraid of it. Uh, we didn't, they didn't know what we were going to say. Uh, you cannot come out, uh, against veganism. Um, I think if you look at every, all right, so let's go, we'll just quickly go through, uh, the vegan movement documentary film world centered around the U S uh, cowspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, funded by, by an animal rights group, um, uh, made by a vegan. Um, you know, a what the health was his second film, uh, also funded by an animal rights uh, activist, a guy who's worth like two hundred million dollars, uh, whose entire mission in life is to end animal agriculture altogether. Um, so you get into the environmental aspect of it with cowspiracy, then what the health? Oh, you you want to be healthy? Here, go plant based. Um, Mm -hmm. horrible science. Even vegan nutritionists were like, this is ridiculous. Correlation versus causation arguments. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you start to move into uh, game changers. Hey, you want to be an elite athlete and function at your absolute best? We're going to create a whole documentary centered around that. Um, And we're going to tell you that your your nighttime erections are going to go up if you go Um, Mm plant-based. Any number of different things. They will use any tactic uh, to move people away from eating meat. Um, They have two that they're fast-tracking. One is on global pandemics, um, essentially blaming animal agriculture for that. Um, 
Yep, that'll be coming out. And then they have a social justice one um, called They're Trying to Kill Us, uh, which is a black vegan activist um, who one of the producers is the same producer on Cowspiracy and What the Health. Um, and that's around the social justice movement. Um, and they're right. very, very explicit about that. It's like a gun and in the gun is ground beef. Um, you know, and so, um, and look, I, there is um, the vegetarian movement in the black activist community, uh, especially centered around the Black Panthers, um, who provided lunch or, lunches for inner city kids, mm -hmm. uh, were vegetarian. Um, they associated themselves uh, with uh, what was being done to animals was, uh, you know, the same thing as chattel slavery. Um, I don't think that a lot of the vegetarian movement is wrong in terms of the way that they uh, approach a lot of social justice issues. Um, but it's, um, I think if you look at it from an anthropological perspective, the first thing a colonial power does um, to disenfranchise uh, indigenous peoples uh, from their health is to remove meat from their diet. Uh, we saw it in Namibia with the San people of the mm. Kalahari who have lived there for tens of thousands of years, um, outlawed hunting. We outlawed hunting. We do not allow them because, you know, white people don't like to see hunting, right, on their, yeah. on their tours. Uh, we saw it in, uh, with the killing of uh, bison in the Americas. That was specifically yeah. done to remove all of the food stuff uh, from indigenous cultures. Uh, we yeah. see the same thing in Inuit diets uh, where they have, they have an igloo pyramid and their igloo pyramid is essentially like blueberries and bananas. You tell me where the fuck you're going to find a banana in, <laughs> you know, in, in yeah. Inuit territory. Um, right. And then just dousing them with huge amounts of sugar and all of that stuff. I mean, it's just like I, I don't understand how a social justice movement could advocate for vegetarianism uh, knowing the anthropological record of removing meat um, from indigenous peoples. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's so much of that. I mean, not just with food. I mean, I remember, you know, with, with our sexual purity culture and abstinence only education and we're, we're just exporting AIDS and everything like to from we just apply these backwards <laughs> ways of doing things from our Western American culture and yeah, um, think that they're going to work elsewhere and it's completely detrimental. And of course, sometimes by design, I think. Um, but yeah, that's uh that's awful. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's hard to, I, I've gotten into some pretty intense debates with like family members about, <laughs> about regenerative agriculture. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's so hard because the films and the research studies and everything that needs to be done in order to kind of exemplify that there are other ways to potentially, you know, feed our population or supplement the feeding of our population in ways that are actually regenerative and healthy. You know, it's, it's like you said, like no one would touch the film, you know, how, how can we possibly bring this information out to the population without money and the appropriate channels? And like, you know, we're, a lot of people are basing their, judgment around what the quote unquote science has been um and don't even people who are maybe educated around like looking at who funded the study and where it's coming from still there's 
there's so many different pathways um, and as far as where the money is coming from and, and who's supporting this stuff. And it feels like pushing a boulder up a hill in order to promote alternative narratives. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I do think that there's, there's a weird thing that's kind of happening, I think, with um, a lot of the surveys that are being done uh, around climate change and mm. uh, individual carbon footprint. Um, I, there were studies that came out that said that people were willing to mitigate uh, a lot of their travel, um, a lot of uh, fast fashion, um, any number of different things. They mm -hmm. said, leave my fucking diet alone. Um, which I found actually kind of nice. Um, yeah. You know, um, these, uh, all of, all of the people who are governing this new plant-based diet are from, uh, you know, um, Nordic states, uh, Eastern, Western European states, um, uh, and they're ignoring culture in, in the same way that colonial empires always do. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think people actually really have a, a visceral, like, um, you know, disgust, uh, for that. Um, you know, it's, it's so weird to kind of dive into a lot of these things. Um, and then also follow a lot of conspiracy theories because I try to listen to a lot of their language, um, and what they, you know, utilize, mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't want to sound conspiratorial. Um, you know, I, I, I argue against myself more than I've read every single vegan book that's out there. If they had one, you know, iota of truth in there, I would, I'm jumping on it. If, if it's, you know, I, I argue against interest in every single way. Um, yeah. A lot of the research that I've put together is essentially direct quotes from those people. Um, I'm telling you what they said, not, not mm -hmm. what I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so it is, I, I don't know. I, I don't even know how to tell people like it's going to get better, <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's where I, I yeah. agree with Chris Ryan, you know, his, uh, <laughs> his book. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I am, I am working with, um, there's a, a, a podcast called Death in the Garden, um, and I've started working with them. Uh, they're young, they're scrappy, um, and uh, they totally get all of the argument from like a Daniel yeah. Quinn perspective, uh, yeah. Chris Ryan perspective. Um, I like them a lot, um, and uh, I think they can kind of create a film that isn't so boomer generation as Sacred Cow was, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And so we're working on that right now. Yeah, you know, I know them, right? I'm close friends with Jake and Marin. I don't oh, know yeah? if we oh, know. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they actually started, they came to Crestown to visit us, and they started coming up with the idea of that film in our living room. So I'm, oh, I'm so obsessed with what they're doing, and... Yeah, Marin's been on the podcast, um, and yeah, we've we've uh, traveled around in our vans together <laughs> through multiple <laughs> places and gone rafting and stuff. Um, yeah, I think what they're doing is amazing, and I agree. I think, I mean, it it really does. I watching them through this process, you know, starting off thinking that they were just sort of going to make a film about regenerative agriculture, and yep. realized that you know there is no way to talk about that without sort of framing it in a more holistic, comprehensive way. But to do that is exhaustive and yeah. <laughs> totally, you know, so much to deal with, especially for like two young people trying to like live their lives. So uh, yeah, I, I'm really appreciative of the work that they've put into this and was really excited to hear that you were working with them. Yeah. They're, um, I think they totally get the idea that we have to, um, 
redefine um, the narrative that we tell ourselves, mm -hmm. our, our, our mythology. Yeah. Um, and so I think that is the way to kind of move forward. It's the only thing that I've been able to kind of get my mind wrapped around. Right. Um, and I, I really believe that they could put it together in a way that's going to resonate with people. Yeah. And I, look, I mean, I think, you know, your podcast, Chris's podcast, people are looking for something that seems reasonable because everybody, everybody knows this isn't working anymore. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. And I think regardless of whether, I mean, I too, even though I'm a part of a younger generation, like I'm very removed from any kind of expectation or that things are going to work out. Um, mm -hmm. or that whatever I'm doing is actually going to make a difference. And in my mind, it's like, I'm just going to act like it, it could, um, and act like my own life could make a difference. Um, and at the end of the day, I would just like to like be happy and fulfilled and healthy, you know, so I'm going to make the choices that seem right to me, um, regardless yeah. of, of whatever happens. And I think there's, I think there's a lot of meaning in that. And I think like, you know, I think what frustrates me are people who are so, maybe coming from that perspective as far as like we're fucked and it's never going to work trying to adopt the the practice that like helps the planet within the context of capitalism like okay well i can't really buy a, you know i live in a city how can i possibly buy a regenerative cow so instead i'm just going to like opt out of eating meat and um i think i'm a little bit of a, an idealist in in most senses um <laughs> but i just always think like if there's a will there's a way and i you know, I would like to live my life, um, in a way that like I do the best that I can and I don't accept that we have to necessarily perpetuate these capitalist structures. Um, or at least I'd very much like to opt out of as many as possible, yeah. um, and exemplify it, you know, and, and show that to some degree that is possible, right? Like how limited are we in what we think we're capable of as far as change. Um, and is, is that just, is that real or is that an excuse? And it depends, but that's how I, yeah, I think, um, Daniel Quinn was, uh, he actually said it, he said that there were, um, when you looked at civilizations that had abandoned, um, civilization, they had just mm -hmm. walked away. I think yeah. there are, there are a lot of people who are just walking away. Yeah. Um, and just trying to figure out something, adopt something that, that exists outside of that. Yeah, um, sure. You know, uh, there, there is still an enormous amount of pressure. And we should totally do a podcast one day on the history of compulsory education. <laughs> yeah. <that's> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you have to unlearn all of this stuff, right? You yes. have to, you, you have been told since uh, early childhood what you are. Um, and you have to we have to start to understand the, 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 the forces at play in, 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 totally. in adopting that. Um, yeah. And we'll <laughs> yeah, have the I same agree. cast of characters running through all it's of it. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I know a lot of this is very familiar to me because I do, I really did spend my um, college experience unpacking a lot of these interwoven systems, um, through education, through family life. It was mostly coming from like the sexual sexuality relational perspective, but of course that involves this quite a bit as far as Kellogg yeah. is concerned and what the, you know, conventional education was preparing us for as far as the workplace and all of that. It's all so connected. And I, 
you know, it was on the one hand relieving for me to read about what a social construction was and like understand the nature of how the world works and was created, but also it, you know, 18, 19, 20 was like, God damn, like, <laughs> where, <laughs> where, and I was so the only one for so long. Like, there was, you know, I felt like I was just walking through the world like on psychedelics all the time. There was just yeah. this other layer that I was always totally conscious of. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe nobody else can see what I see. It was so frustrating for a long yeah. time. But there's um, a, I mean, you've seen the pervert's guide to, uh, the world. I think it's called. Yeah. 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 Um, I, you know, I think there are a lot of people who are doing some really great work at, at getting people yeah. to kind of look through that. Um, yes. century of self. Have you seen century of self? I haven't. No. Ah, no. it's on YouTube. It's free. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's about the, it's essentially about what we're talking about right now. Um, how do you get a civilization to adopt, uh, you know, consumption, uh, mm -hmm. for its own sake? Um, right. and the, the players in that Edward Bernays, who, mm -hmm. you know, created the word propaganda, uh, yeah. created the first Madison Avenue ad agency, um, you know, nephew yeah. to Sigmund Freud. Um, using an enormous amount of psychology uh, to essentially yeah. create uh, this shitstorm that we're living in. For uh, sure. Great, great documentary. Really. Yeah, I have a I have a friend who's a former Mormon who I've had on the podcast a couple times, and he's very mm -hmm. into the Edward Edward Benezes of the world, and we talked a bit about that. So yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, um, I would love to talk to you again at some point about any other topic. I agree. Sure. I think our minds work in similar ways. Um, but let's wrap it up today. So if you could, I don't know if there's somewhere where people can find out more about you or contact you or follow you out there in the internet world. Um, and then also I ask everyone on my podcast to recommend one book that that was that was especially influential in their lives or a couple or three if you have a problem with favorites as i do um uh, so. uh, okay i mean really the only uh, place that i'm active uh and if you want a window into my scattered mind uh primate <laughs> kitchen on instagram uh cool uh is is where i'm probably most active uh i am on twitter i don't even know what it's called um, so maybe you can put yeah. it in the show notes. Um, <laughs> Will do. yeah. And I, I'm, I, I love talking about this stuff. So I, anybody who wants to reach out, um, the, uh, the book that I would recommend, um, uh, is, um, I'm going to recommend an author, uh, Trevanian is his name. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, mm -hmm. He uh, was a – so these series of books came out um, in the late 70s, um, and they were uh, – everybody had thought that they were uh, like a collective of, of writers because they're, every single one of them is so different. Mm. Russian romance novel, spy novel, um, you know, um, uh, mystery, uh, cowboy western, any number of different ones. It, they mm -hmm. thought they was, it was a collective, and so – Nobody really knew who this guy was. They thought he lived in some old chalet in the Basque region of Spain or something like that. Turns out he was just like a history professor in Texas somewhere. Um, and um, he's fucking awesome. For anybody who's like grew up in a world where they existed in their own imagination, his semi-autobiography is called The Crazy Ladies of Pearl Street. Um, and it's about growing up during the Depression uh, as a kid who mainly existed in his own head. Mm -hmm. Um, and all of the stuff associated with that, uh, God, it's such an amazing book. I just, That's I awesome. absolutely love it. 
Uh, his most famous one is probably the one I've read, like, you know, I've, I've read Chris's work like five times. I, <laughs> I, if I get into a book, I read a lot. Uh, yeah. Shibumi. Uh, Shibumi mm. is his most famous work. It is the 20th century uh, told through the, uh, the idea of a spy novel. Uh, an oh. assassin who takes on, uh, you know, the multinational corporations. Uh, I cannot do it justice. It's unbelievable. Um, this guy should be well known throughout, you know, in every academic circle. They're fun to read, but his history Sweet. of the 20th century is fucking amazing. Um, so I would definitely recommend that. Um, awesome. Yeah, she'll enjoy. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's we actually. I have a book club that I do quarterly or more, um, and we always pick books from recommendations of oh, pro- cool. former podcast guests. So maybe we'll all read it and we'll help spread awesome. it around. <laughs> well, thank you so much, James. That was um, enjoyable in a sort of odd, depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's how people describe me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that episode. Um, Really grateful for James's presence on the show. And I hope to have many more conversations with him, both uh, casually in person when the world gets back to normal and also on the podcast. Um, I am going to play you guys out today with a song called Strange American Dream by Raylan Baxter, which probably doesn't need any sort of introduction or explanation. I think you'll be able to find the common threads between this song and this episode. Again, if you would like to become a part of this community in a more intimate way, Patreon is the place to do that. Patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Lots of different perks available there for you, um, and also your uh, money is greatly appreciated as this is my only gig, and somehow I need to eat and um, have shelter and, you know, do human things. So (laughs) I appreciate all of your support. Your support um, keeps me from having to uh, use sponsors on this podcast, which... I don't want to do. So thank you all so, so, so much. However you support the show, even if it's just listening or sharing an episode with your friends or sending me an email about your thoughts. It is so nice to connect with you. And I can't fucking wait to meet more of you in person and sit in a real space and like with your real body and uh, talk to you and give you a hug. How dope is that going to be? Can't wait. So until next time, enjoy the song. Bye. Hey, baby. Hey, baby. Maybe I was born sick In a castle on top of the world Maybe the whole gang is better off Making money out fighting a war Terminal motion Spinning me around Temporary devotion With the picket fence and a rowdy crowd Well I was sure that everything was going fine Until you took the shot and killed me with your mind I'm a man and I want to be honest
tastes like blood Look at all of the sensitive people Screaming from the yards Oh, and my neighbor down the street With the pretty face and the rubber jaw Has plenty there to eat But she don't share nothing at all I reinforced with 